Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learntopaintpodcast.com slash newsletter. Bring colors in, play with them, listen to your instructors. But at the end of the day, you close the door in your studio and you make your own decisions based off of what you like. Hello and welcome to the Learn to Paint podcast, the show that gives you artistic tools you can put to work. I'm your host, Kelly Ann Powers. In today's mini episode, Todd M. Casey is back, and he's here to talk about a very practical tool, your color wheel. Now, there are a bunch of color wheels in his new book, The Oil Painter's Handbook, a contemporary guide to color mixing, pigments, palettes, and harmony. And for today's mini, we focus on the one that's most relevant to painters for color mixing, the traditional subtractive color wheel referred to in the show as the color wheel. In the conversation, you'll learn how the traditional color wheel is set up, what it's based on, and then we dive into using it for color mixing. This conversation is on the technical side. We get into the glorious weeds of color. Because of that, I will pause a bit more than normal and do some quick explainers. There's so much cool technical stuff that Casey talks about, and I want to make sure that no matter what color knowledge you bring into the conversation, that you can build on that with all the cool stuff Casey talks about. But we just scratched the very, very surface of color wheels, color mixing, and color as a whole. So seriously, go check out his book, The Oil Painter's Handbook. It's not just for oil painters. For show notes, head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 81. And if you want to practice your own color mixing, join us in the podcast art club for the next mini sprint challenge beginning July 1st. Learn more at learntopaintpodcast.com slash challenge. All right, here we go. Hi, Todd. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we're going to talk about color wheels and the pigments on them. But first off, to get started, if I was a third grader, how would you explain what the color wheel is? Well, thank you for having me. Honored to be on. I think this is the second time now. So I appreciate you having me come back. I love that question because it reminds me actually of Einstein. And there was actually a quote, which was, make it so simple that a grade schooler could understand it. And I think that's a great place to kind of begin with all this stuff. And that's to keep it simple, because I think a lot of what good painting is, or even good coloring or, or using color, is a combination of all of these things coming together like a symphony. So what I would say, what the color wheel is, is, is an organization of color. It's a tool that should help the artist solve problems. It's basically just a circle to a degree. And again, that's where it can change depending on the models that you're using with a neatly arranged cues around it. And we're trying to use it in order to solve our problems, mostly for color mixing. Essentially, it's just that if you took red and yellow, your prediction would be to get an orange. How do you get that orange, right? But the thing you, we have to admit is just that it's a flawed tool. It's not perfect, you know? It solves problems, but it's not so much always a perfect map from A to B. And I think that's, that's really where my book, I was trying to set it up of like, here's just a bunch of information about color and color wheels 
and also color mixing and, and color palettes that have been used and arrangements. And it's not like they all point to one way at the end that we've all come to. There's still just a beautiful diversity of thought, which again, makes it beautiful, just like language. So that's kind of the gist of it. Give me a lay of the land, like give me the geography of a traditional color wheel. How is it laid out? Yeah. So based off of the visible spectrum, we have red at, you could call it zero degrees and at 180 degrees across from it is green. And again, you know, this information is flawed, but it's a concept that's just been taught all the way, I think from about 1935, Johannes Eaton, I think is the one who really brought it into the Bauhaus painter into the American system or really globally. And then we've just adopted it. And, you know, my daughter's in school. She's coming home saying the same thing. And she said, red, yellow, and blue are the primaries. And I'm sitting there like, no harm, no foul. Depends on how what you're arguing about, but she's four. So it's like, that's fine. So really what it is, is that you can almost think of them as triangles, red, yellow, and blue. At zero, you would have red. And then at 120, you'd have yellow. And then at 240, you would have blue. So you'd have a triangle. If you were to take another opposite triangle or split the difference between that at 60 degrees, you would have a color in between them. That would be orange. Green would be in between yellow and blue. And then between blue and red, you'd have violet or purple. Violet is a spectral color. So it depends on if you're talking about light. Purple is a mixture of paints. So if we're talking about paint, then we usually will say purple. Violet tends a little bit more towards the blue side and purple tends a little bit more towards the red side. So again, interchangeable colors. Newton used violet. Munsell uses purple. It depends on what you're basing things off of. So we basically would have six colors. And so essentially that's the order of the wheel, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, violet, Roy G. Biv, as a lot of people will say, even in grad school, the eyes taken out, which would make it, it wouldn't even change Biv, still be Biv. You mentioned the visible spectrum. Is that what the color wheel is based on? Like, what is the color wheel based on? The color wheel is based off of the electromagnetic spectrum that we see. And basically taking wavelengths, the longest wavelength would be red and the shortest wavelength would be violet, right? You can actually Google it and just kind of see the line of it. So really the visible spectrum is what we're basing a wheel on. And we're essentially just taking this theoretical, because color doesn't come in a straight line of short to long, it's just an illustration that we're using to kind of show it. And then we're bending it around a circle into an order so that violet now has to touch red, which again is more theoretical because you're taking the short and the long and you're just putting them together. So a lot of it is based off of theory. I think that's why it actually stays as color theory. And that's how we're organizing it. And that's where the arguments become, is it based off of color mixing, which I'd say like the traditional wheel is based off of a red, yellow, blue, the idea for that. You can't mix a red, you can't mix a yellow, you can't mix a blue. Those would be the primary colors. That's kind of the gist of it all. Today, we're focusing on the traditional subtractive color wheel, but there are actually other color wheels, right? So could you talk about a few of them that people will find in your book and maybe also touch on why there are different color wheels? Well, that's the beautiful thing. And it's almost like the diversity of color wheels are going to give you different answers, right? So essentially what we're trying to do is simplify a concept color, which is so complex that we're trying to boil it down into a almost like two-dimensional flat surface. And it's like, you know, we live in a three-dimensional world. So we're trying to boil it down into a little tool, almost like a little pocket reference, like a Rosetta stone. 
for this massive way that we talk about color. And it's almost like you'd have to like set up the argument about how you're talking about, are we talking about light? Are we talking about perception? Are we talking about color mixing? Artists want to know mostly about color mixing. They want to know how to get the color that they're looking to or how to think about it. So in its simplest form, I'd say that like you want to say, I see that color. How do I mix it? It's kind of like this simplicity of what the color wheel is. And you could basically say that, let's take a traditional color wheel. And, you know, I teach it as like there's there's about three major color wheels out there. There's way more that we use. One of them would be the traditional wheel with the red, yellow, blue kind of as the primaries. The Munsell wheel, which would be red, yellow, green, blue, and purple as the primaries. They would have five. But the Munsell system or the Munsell color model is more based off of light and perception. But then there's something called the additive subtractive wheel, which is interesting because that is actually kind of the big Rosetta Stone that merges a lot of these things together. So those are like the three major color wheels. We're going to dig into the traditional subtractive color wheel, the traditional color wheel. So listeners at home might have heard terms like warm and cool. So could you talk about what that means, what warm and cool means on a traditional color wheel? So typically, red, orange, and yellow would be the warm side of the color wheel on a traditional color wheel. And then violet or purple, blue, and green would be the cool side. So you could actually draw a line on the left side of R between them and then just say kind of like make, but again, it's it's more of like theoretical because if you took something like red, you could have a warm and a cool version of a red, right? Which would be called warm. I mean, everybody would say yellow or orange or red are pretty much, you know, they're warm, but juxtaposition next to each other, you can have a warm and a cool version of a color. So for instance, cadmium lemon next to cadmium yellow medium one could feel like it's tipping a little bit more towards the green side, which we would call cool. I want to jump in here real quick for listeners, because you just mentioned warm and cool. And listeners have heard us use the word hue, which hue is a characteristic of color. So let's talk real quick about the characteristics of color, because I know it's going to come up here real soon. Color has three different characteristics, hue, value, and chroma. Hue is what we were just talking about. Cadmium yellow, cobalt blue, cadmium red. Those are all hue. And within that, we have warm and cool, including within colors like a warm red versus a cool red. But we also have the warm side of the color wheel versus the cool side of the color wheel. But that's all hue. The other two characteristics of color are value and chroma. Value is how light or dark a color is. If you took a photograph and desaturated took all the color out of that photograph, you'd be left with black, white, and grays. That's the value of the color. And value has its own scale. So it's either a 1 to 9 or a 1 to 10, white to black, or black to white, depending on which scale. So finally, we've got chroma or saturation. And sometimes saturation is called intensity. If you squeeze cadmium red out of a tube, it's going to be super, super saturated, very intense. That's the brightest that can be. But you can gray it down until it loses all of its saturation and becomes a gray. But think about we're not changing value, we're just changing saturation. So With all of that in mind, if people have been painting for a little bit, they've probably heard the idea 
of complementary and analogous colors. So could you break down what are complementary colors on the traditional color wheel? So really what it is, is just that the opposite of a color is really what's supposed to be across a wheel. So we have the red green kind of thing going on in this wheel. It's actually not that way. If we were to, that's why something like the Munsell wheel would be a, a better wheel for perception. Because what happens with our eyes is when, you know, we have a short middle and a long cones in there to pick up the spectrum of colors and they're overlapping to create their perception of color. If you were to stare at red and you were to exhaust your cones from staring at that one color, you'd see the colors opposite, which is cyan. So technically across from a wheel would be the colors complement. And again, it, it depends on what we're talking about for what a complement really is. It's going to change based off of, you know, optics versus color mixing. For color mixing, the essential idea for, for what is across the wheel, and again, not perfect here, is just that the color across from it, if you mix the two together, red and green, are going to get, not all wheels are set up this way, but most wheels are set up that neutral is in the center. So really what it's doing is it's, it's accounting for hue and it's accounting for chroma or intensity of the color. And so essentially, if you took red and green and you mix them together, the theory would be you would get gray, but it never happens that way. Not never. I don't want to say never, but it's like there's no such thing really. I've actually showed this on Instagram too. If you took the same two nearly identical pigments and I mixed them with the same control. So if I took red and I said red's complementary color, the color that would neutralize it to pure neutral would be cobalt teal, which could be argued as cyan, then you would get a neutral, right? Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. It actually doesn't work most of the time. And when it does, you're kind of like, that's interesting. So it's called complementary mute mixing. That's when we get into color mixing. Again, the subtractive wheel. If I took cadmium red medium, and then I took naphthol red, they look identical. And if you measured them even with a spectrophotometer, you get them nearly the same. And then you took cobalt teal and you mix them, you'd see that there'd be a shift. You wouldn't get the same neutral which is why it's so complex, because we're basically trying to say, like, there has to be a prediction model for A plus B equals C, but it's not. It's just so much more complex than that. So then what is analogous in the traditional subtractive color wheel? Analogous, there's actually a fantastic quote by Mark Chagall. He basically said that colors are the lovers of their opposites and friends of their neighbors. Really what it is is just that analogous colors just mean the neighbors. Of course, we're using, we're talking about the traditional wheel. But if you were to break it down, like I take each color and I break it down into like red, and then I have a red leaning towards orange, and then I have a red leaning towards violet, those could also be analogous. So they're really just kind of similar colors, and they all feel like they're kind of united harmonically because they're, they feel like they're cousins of each other, you know, they're neighbors. We've been talking about the primaries and secondaries, but I haven't once heard you mention brown or black or white. So how do those colors fit on the color wheel? Yeah, you know, so I went to, I've been to many schools and I always listen to what everybody has to say and I've taken color theory classes. A lot of it didn't make sense to me and a lot of it still kind of does. I can usually get normally where people are coming from, but things that didn't make sense to me which comes when it's into the color mixing side of it was, you know, what the heck is brown? You know, what is black? What is white? So we have red, we talked about red, orange, yellow, green, blue, violet. 
but we didn't talk about what brown is and when the heck do you grab it besides painting something that's brown, right? Now, we don't typically, in life, we don't see a lot of high intense colors. I mean, you do see them, but it's like, if I look around my studio right now, everything's kind of lower intensity. And really what it is, is that by taking a color wheel and kind of creating a map, and it doesn't have to be a perfect map, it's kind of generally, you can take colors like browns, like burnt umber, and say, what color is that? What hue is it? And that's the interesting thing about even like studying something like Munsell is you could say like, there's a hue, a value, and a chroma, which you could measure with a spectrophotometer that places it into red, orange, yellow, green, blue, or violet. So burnt umber is a low chroma or low intensity red orange. Holy crap, right? So now I know that if I'm painting something that's a dark, very dark in hue, value, red orange. So if I'm painting something like an orange and I need to go dark with it, if I can now grab burnt umber. Alternatively, the some of the models, and I think a lot of the reasoning for this, like color mixing, the concepts that we're kind of we talk about are really that we're going across the wheel, right? But again, it would change depending on which wheel you're going to use, which is why these concepts are like, you're kind of basing all your theory for everything that you're doing on this one theoretical wheel that is based off of one piece of a thing. You know what I mean? So what is across the wheel from orange on the traditional wheel would be blue. Typically, what I was taught was to grab orange and blue and mix them together. Well, you're going to get a brown, right? But if you grabbed a color that was in the same hue angle, so if if red is zero, and then probably 20 to 25 degrees would be where orange is, I think it's 25, you're going to grab colors that actually are in the right family. Really, you know, and when you do that, you're looking at light and dark versions of the same color. Just like, you know, raw umber would be a low chroma yellow green in that family, depending on where you kind of mined it from. It's really a natural iron oxide. And to me, that was a game changer. So if I was painting an apple, let's say just like a a red delicious apple, and I needed to make it go darker, I'm not going to grab green because green is going to shift it in color space. It's going to shift it maybe even toward the brown where I just need to make it go dark red. So something like alizarin crimson would be a better color because a dark version of a red. And again, I, I think this is where it gets complex because artistically speaking, I love complementary color muting. That's what it's referred to now because it's not perfectly neutralizing it, it's muting it. So when you're muting a color going across a wheel, it's a little bit unpredictable. But when you're trying to get something that's predictable, I think it's great to be able to be like, oh, it's just a dark red. I have a dark red. People call that brown. I'm just going to grab brown. But the same can be true about what titanium white is, which I think titanium white is one of those colors that everybody knows it has a bluish kind of tint to it. If you were to measure it, you could argue that it would be a low chroma yellow, very neutral. It reflects about 98% of light, which means it absorbs 2% of something, right? And if you were to measure it because it's submerged into a liquid or an oil, if you were to take a look at what that oil is, the oil is yellow. Of course, it's going to have a tiny bit of it if you're going to measure it. But it typically acts like a blue. So we can take titanium white and say titanium white is a blue. That's fine. Pedantically speaking, so ivory black, when you mix it, and again, you could measure this too, if you wanted to. And I think that's where people do have that interesting, like, what is it actually kind of mentality sometimes? You would see that when you mix it with titanium white, it's actually going to curve and tip towards a a low chroma or low intense purple blue. 
So if you're on the cool side of the wheel, grab ivory black to go darker. That's fine. Don't grab it when you're mixing yellow. If you mix it with yellow, it turns green. Well, blue and yellow kind of equal green to a degree. So there's kind of like theory that does work and then theory that doesn't work. And a lot of the times we're just shaking our head going like, and it kind of works, but it kind of doesn't work. And that's a general sense of kind of every color wheel. When we are first starting out in color, we sort of think that like, if you want to lighten something, you add white. And if you want to darken something, you add black. And what I hear you saying is that there's a different way to think about it. And that's where a color wheel can come in handy that, you know, if you want to darken a red, you shouldn't necessarily add black if you want to purely get darker. No, you're right. Because if we just took off the word black, because it's not black, you just say it's a very, very, very dark blue. And if you took blue and red and you mix them together, you're going to probably get a purple, right? That's just like the basis of the thought. The thing is, the further away on a color wheel you mix two colors, the harder it is to predict what's going to happen because they're actually going to arc. They're not going to go in a straight line. Right. So almost like on a color wheel, it sounds like you're saying think darker, not necessarily black, because sometimes darker is black, but sometimes darker is burnt umber. Yeah, I think just think of a dark version of that color. And I think that's where like, when we categorize brown as its own color, it's not its own color. It's a dark version, low chroma typically of something. It's an iron oxide normally, like burnt umber, raw umber, which are the same pigment, by the way. One is just burnt, one's thrown into a, an oven, and then it, it shifts in hue when it's burnt, which is kind of crazy. Of course it does, right? It gets more red-orange. But yeah, I think typically... You know, we try to break it down from grade school into like this, like, if you want to go lighter, we're just thinking of value now, right? We're just like, white gets lighter and black gets darker, but you're just going to get an arc in color space towards, probably towards violet as you get lighter, and then probably towards blue as it gets darker. So you're going to have this one note of red, like the red crayon, and then when you add white to it, it shifts it towards violet, and then you add black, it shifts it towards purple, blue. The closer in hue angle that you mix two colors, red and orange, the prediction models are going to be pretty close. It's when you go across the wheel, red and green, or red and cyan, where they're going to noticeably have a hue drift to them. So hue drift is when you mix a color lighter or darker and it begins to move out of its hue family. Like you try to mix an orange lighter or darker with white or black, and it gets lighter or darker but it also starts to drift towards another color, another like wedge of the color wheel pie. Less of this orange that you're trying to mix and more of a yellow orange or a red orange or a gray orange or something outside of this color family. So does that mean then, just speaking about value, if someone has a tube color, like instead of going black to darker, they look for a darker pigment that's in that same color family. Does that serve true then for lighter? Yeah, it almost seems like so like, like, duh, right? But the thing is that most of the time, colors on the cool side of the wheel, on the traditional wheel, dioxazine violet looks nearly black. So all you have to do is add white to it. You almost already have black. The same with phthalo blue, it's nearly black. Ultramarine blue is nearly black. Phthalo green is nearly black. Cobalt violet is probably, it depends on if you get a light or dark version of that shade. But that's also a complex color because it, it's very transparent. But typically, you don't even have to mess all that much with black. You know, and people even mix their own black sometimes because you can get a, what's referred to as a chromatic black. So some people use black in their palette, some people don't. John Singer Sargent, Cecilia Boo, you know, all these 
great artist, Whistler, Manet, use black. But then Impressionism comes and you see, you hear, don't use black in your palette. You know, you just mentioned, you know, darker versions on the cool side. Are there darker versions on the warm side that you go to for different yellows and reds? Yeah, generally on my palette, I'll have, like for red, I'll have, I actually paint with alizarin claret, alizarin claret or permanent alizarin. They came up with that color. It's PR177, not to dork out, but PR83 is what alizarin crimson is. Alizarin just is light fast, so I take it off the palette. I don't want to sell a painting and have somebody come back in 10 years and tell me it's starting to fade. So typically, it's just kind of red, orange, yellow that I need a dark for, and then greens, I already kind of have it covered. So my dark red is alizarin or burnt umber, and that that serves my orange as well. I can mix burnt umber with raw umber to get a dark red-orange to kind of mix those two. I have raw umber on the palette. And again, it lowers the chroma as well. So it's doing more than just kind of one thing. It's always like hue, value, and chroma of everything. And then on the dark side, I have, I do have ivory black on the palette, even though I love to mix my own of ultramarine and burn umber. It's almost like temperamental. How do you feel that day? Do you want to get the actual or do you want to be playful? And sometimes I'm like, this is a commission. I don't want to be too playful. I know what I need to do. But then it's like in my own work, I'm like, eh, maybe this will make it to the gallery. Maybe it's just me playing around with color and see what comes out of it. But then on the, you know, on that dark side, I have Viridian, which is not black, but I know I can always add black to it to go darker. I can, you can always add black to a dark color. And it's, even if it's going to shift in color space, you're almost not going to see it because our cones can't pick up color in our colors. And then when it comes to violet, I don't have a lot of violets on my palette. I have manganese violet. Sometimes I'll throw in cobalt violet light, but that's about it. You know, dark green is viridian, dark blue is ultramarine, it's nearly black, and that serves, you know, everything I need. So what actually do you lay out on your palette then, and why? Yeah, so the way in which I set mine up, you know, and this is where there's even the palette section in the book, which is just taking a look at what's been available to artists, which is why some palettes were what they were throughout the years. Like Rembrandt didn't have a modern pigment like cornacrinone red that was only available in 1958. He couldn't get magenta, right? He couldn't get these colors. So really, you know, we're at a time now, which is just beautiful, where you have 100 to 130 pigments, depending on the manufacturer, and everyone's confused. Because we go there, we're like, there's like five reds, and they all look identical. What's the difference between naphthol red and pyrrole red and cadmium red? I'll tell you why I chose what I chose. And I have a palette that can hit pretty high chroma. For the most part, nobody needs to hit like the maximum chroma. And if anything, if you started with a bag of Skittles for your palette, it's so hard to like, if most of the things that we see are lower chroma, start closer to some of those colors. Like if I'm painting something that's low intense red, like you don't need, you need, you need to start with like super high chroma colors. So what I found is that opaque colors are my favorites. They have no light fast issues. They're minerals or metals. So cadmiums and cobalts are fantastic. The newer pigments are the laking method ones. They're the dyes. You know, Michael Harding calls them, he still calls them like, I think, Scarlet Lake or Thalo Lake because it's the roots to kind of the matter colors. So I'll go around my palette and I'll tell you why I have the colors and why they're there. And again, this comes down to choice. It's up to you what you want to add to it. For R or red, which is the zero hue, I have cadmium red. I also have alizarin crimson, which again, whether you want to debate, it should be in dry pigment form on the R or if you add white. I kind of put it as my violet red. It tips towards violet because when you add white to it, it's going to do that. 
I also have for orange, I have cadmium orange on there and cadmiums are mostly on the warm side. I have cadmium yellow medium. Sometimes I have cadmium lemon on my palette. The reason I have cadmium lemon is that you can't mix it, right? That's kind of the red, yellow, blue kind of theory of primaries. I can't mix cadmium lemon. I can mix with cadmium lemon and red cadmium yellow medium. I could just add a little, it's just going to tip it towards orange. So I start with a cadmium lemon. And then for dark versions of those colors, I typically have raw umber and burnt umber. And that kind of hits that whole corner of the color wheel over there, right? That's like a about a third of the color wheel on the traditional color wheel. Next one I have is cadmium green pale, which is a Winsor Newton color, but it's what's referred to as a convenience mixture. It's a high chroma. It looks like candy apple. And that is not to get too dorky here, but it's a mixture of viridian and cadmium lemon. If I wanted to, I could mix that every time, but I don't want to. So I, I start with it and I love the color of it. The other thing I want to throw in here is that these colors sometimes come from our teachers. And that color came from my teacher, Max Ginsburg. When I used it because I was trying to do what he was doing, I was like, I love that color. It's just a staple on my palette. I use it all the time. Other greens that I have, I have cinnabar green on there, which is a low chroma mid color. That is my Rembrandt. And then I have a dark green, which is Viridian. And that is a blue leaning green. I also have cobalt blue, ultramarine blue for my B, and also ivory black on there sometimes. And then for the violet, I don't have a ton of colors on there. Just manganese violet for the most part. I'll sometimes throw in the quinacridones, which the quinacridones don't have light fast issues even though they're always testing this stuff. I know they're doing a big test right now where they're trying to retest everything with the light fastness. So add in titanium white. Sometimes I'll throw in a Naples yellow in there, but it depends on what I'm painting and the day, you know, for, for how I feel. I'm always testing out palettes. I would say this. I think sometimes the debate over like, what are the primary colors and what are the three colors that we need to use on our palette kind of thing. I don't know a lot of people that, only have three colors on their palette. So it ends up being these kind of debates for like, you know, you could boil it down to red, yellow, and blue and what red, yellow, and what blue. And it's like, I don't think you need to do that unless you're like on a super budget and you're trying to figure it out. And if so, then go with cyan, yellow, and magenta. But again, the new set of problems for that is that you're going to have transparent pigments. Transparent pigments have way more secondaries. When you mix a primary and a primary, you get a secondary. When you mix a secondary... And a primary, you now get a tertiary, right? So like you could just go buy, if you bought the three primaries, red, yellow, blue, and then you bought violet, orange, and green, you'd, even when I talked to Robert Gamblin, he's like, I don't know why people debate this stuff. Just get the primaries and the secondaries and you'd have like a full palette. Add in some of the umbers in there, you know, raw umber, burnt umber, and then ivory black and titanium white. And I think you get everything you need. Depending on who guides you would be like, ooh, I love... Like, I love manganese violet because Travis Schlott showed me how to work with it on portraits. And I was like, oh, what a fantastic violet that gets gobbled up and gently pulls you towards the violets, just tiny, like a whisper. And now I use it all the time. So it's a fascinating concept, like palettes and who uses what and why. You know, Rembrandt had lapis lazuli on his, which was very expensive pigment. I think it translates to across the sea because they, they had to mine it out of a cave in Afghanistan. It was the original ultramarine blue. If you went into a paint store now and you asked for ultramarine blue, they're not going to give you lapis. They're not going to direct you to lapis lazuli, but it has the same exact CIN number, which is PB29, but 
Ultramarine Blue now is a Series 1, and it costs like $8 to have it on a tube. We've been talking about all of this theory, but how do artists start getting to know their colors? Like, the actual pigments they have at home. I think the easiest way to start would be to just, like, take your tubes and put them in red, orange, yellow, green, blue, violet, in the order of the spectrum that you would see them. And then arrange them on your palette that way. I get a lot of compliments on my palette because I'm like, it's just red, orange, yellow, green, blue, violet. And then I have a, a light, a mid, and a dark of every color. So I have about 25 colors, I think, in my palette. But do the same. Put them together because you're trying to order something. You don't want to get in a car every time and you're like, I don't know where the, I don't know where the windows are. And that's what happens when you ride somebody else's car. You're trying to get comfort, right? The steering wheel, thankfully, is always in the same place. But I think that like trying to kind of take it and break it down and then seeing what a color does, introduce one color at a time if you do want to tinker to see how it kind of interacts with the rest of them would be a good way to kind of think about it. So outside of like the palette that I have, I don't have like phthalo on there. If you do need to hit a high chroma green or a blue, grab a phthalo. Again, the, the most hated, loved color, I think, of all time. It's so staining that people, when you mix it, it always ends up on things that you're like, I didn't even have phthalo in this room, and it's on the fridge. The other ones are like dioxazine violet. An another color I'm not a huge fan of, but it hits a note if you need to hit a note. So I have those guest colors. I call them guest colors. They're invited to the party only if they're needed, but very, very rare. I think I painted a, a butterfly once that is like iridescent. I think it was a Ulysses butterfly. And I was like, I just can't hit that. The way light interacts with it is incredible. So I introduced phthalo, but that was probably the last time I painted with it. It's just so electric of a color. I prefer something that's similar, that's lower chroma, that kind of hits that corner. Something like cerulean blue to me is a better color. So, but to each his own, you know? Bring colors in, play with them, listen to your instructors. But at the end of the day, you close the door in your studio and you make your own decisions based off of what you like. There's not one color you have to buy. Hero Red is another one I've been kind of playing around with, super high chroma red. But again, I'm not painting tomatoes every day, so I don't need that much chroma. So we've been talking about your book today, The Oil Painter's Color Handbook, a contemporary guide to color mixing, pigments, palettes, and harmony. Highly recommend this book. I have it sitting in front of me. It's truly a book you will use for your entire painting career, no matter your level right now. What was your purpose in writing the book? Thank you. I appreciate the you've enjoyed it. Yeah, the whole point of me teaching it, or even the fact that I just came out of the blue and wrote a color book because it came off the art of still life was to answer the questions, really to kind of guide students in color that you don't have to go and study color for 10 years or get tools or Munsell books or spectrophotometers or things like this to kind of understand color. The point is really the performance. And this is where Michael Aviano used to teach it as well, that like there's the theory and then there's a the performance. And we can't get too caught up in the theoretical side because the expression is really in the art. And that's really where I make the difference where I'm not trying to come up here and pretend that I know it all. I refer to people like Dr. David Briggs at Hue Value Chroma, Bruce McAvoy on handprint.com. I was looking at his website a lot too. Douglas Flint was my teacher. So we were chatting all the time and just kind of always boiling it down to like, what's the useful amount of information that students need without going into kind of insider baseball? We can't go there. I think you just, a lot of people would kind of glaze over it. 
some people would find it interesting, but you get down to like such a small niche market that you're going to lose everybody. And the purpose of it is just, here's the information you need. Just like we were talking about with like mixing predictions. That's about what you need. I don't need to measure that if I took a program and everything had a huge drift that I need to find out what that huge drift is. It's just, sometimes it's just like you use one color. I use a different color. There's a different amount of hue drift in Kelly's paintings versus mine. I love your work. I don't know why I love it. Well, it's probably the decisions that you're making, the brushes, the paint, you know, all of those things, your interpretation of the colors that is beautiful. And I celebrate it as, as I celebrate diversity in that sense that like, I am so happy to see that we're not all able to just copy exactly what we see up in front of us. If so, and we were in a room and we all kind of had the same looking paintings, I think it would, it would be boring. You can learn more about Todd M. Casey and his new book, The Oil Painter's Color Handbook, A Contemporary Guide to Color Mixing, Pigments, Palettes, and Harmony at his website, www.toddmcasey.com, and on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and Patreon, and we'll link to everything in the show notes. Thank you so much for being with us today, Todd. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for joining me this week on the podcast. Did you enjoy the episode? Take a screenshot and share it on Instagram stories and tag me at Learn to Paint Podcast so I can say thank you. For show notes and a link to Casey's book, head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 81. And if you want to work on your own color mixing, join us in the podcast art club. July 1st, we'll do our next mini sprint challenge where we are focusing on color keys. It'll be a great way to practice mixing those lights and darks that we learned about in today's mini episode. To learn more about the week-long challenge, head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash challenge and look for the podcast art club link. Thank you to everyone over in the podcast art club. You make this show possible. Extra shiny thank yous to High Gloss supporters, Andrew Atterbury, Debbie and Brian Miller, Rihanna DeRold, Janet Wheeler, Nancy Bryant, Pam Lyle, and Slow River Studio. Happy painting.